In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Welcome to Money Tales. This is Cami, and today Sandy and I have a conversation with Jennifer Risher. Back in the 90s, Jen went to work at Microsoft, met her husband, and when they were expecting their first child, he decides to go work for an entrepreneur who has an audacious dream to sell books online. As part of this transition, they walk away from valuable Microsoft stock options in exchange for stock options in this high-risk business. Jen covers this adventure and many others in her recently published book, We Need to Talk, a memoir about wealth. And if you haven't figured it out yet, the business her husband joined was a little-known company at the time called Amazon. Cammie and I were delighted to sit down with Jen because we're all so aligned in our mission to get people talking about money. At the end of this interview, we include a financial insight about stock options, so be sure to stick around for that. Now, let's get to the conversation with Jen Risher. Jen Risher, welcome to Money Tales. We're so glad you're here with us. Thank you, Sandy and Cami. Good to be here. To get our conversation going, we would like you to please tell us, well, just give us an overview of your life, focusing on maybe two or three pivotal moments that have made you the person that you are today talking with us. Wow. An overview of my life. Okay. Well, you know, I guess the big news is that I've been very lucky. So when I was 25, I joined Microsoft and I met my husband, David, and I got stock that ended up being worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Six years later, Dave and I were married, expecting our first child. And David joined a small unknown startup that was selling books on the internet called Amazon.com. And, you know, we were in our early 30s, the company went public, and we had more money than we could wrap our heads around. And how did I get to that point? I mean, as far as pivotal moments, after college, I spent a couple years in Tokyo teaching English to a bunch of steel executives. And I came back interested in working in advertising. So I'd always loved ads and advertising. And I thought, I really want to get into an agency, which isn't easy to do. There, it's hard to break in. And I spent many, many months sending out resumes and following up and having no luck. And one day I got an informational interview and I went in and kind of the same story. You know, we like you, but we just don't have any positions. And maybe this is the pivotal moment, but I said, yeah, I'm going to, I'm, I want to work here. Can I work for free? And so they allowed me to come in and work for free. And I came in every day and I did what was needed. And over the course of a few months of working at that agency, I met people, I met friends, and I found out about an agency across the street that had an opening. And I took my resume over there, I interviewed, and I got that job. So I got into advertising. So that was a super exciting break and 
yeah, I was kind of on my career path. And maybe this is the pivotal moment because about a year in, a friend of mine called and said, hey, there's a position here at, at my company. Are you interested? And I really, she, it was a position in HR working in recruit, campus recruiting. And I wasn't really interested in that position. Um, I really wanted to learn more about advertising. But she worked at this company called Microsoft that I had, you know, recently moved to Seattle. So I had kind of learned how it's such an amazing place to work, uh, full of challenge and opportunity. And I thought, well, who knows? Maybe I could work my way into a marketing job if I joined Microsoft. I, I might as well interview. And that decision to go interview at Microsoft, I think, really was a one that changed the trajectory of my life with receiving stock options, meeting my husband. So that was pretty pivotal. Very pivotal. That's right. So Jen, I thought you were going to add an additional pivotal moment, which is publishing your new memoir, We Need to Talk. Wow. It's absolutely right. Thanks for bringing that up. I'm super excited that, yes, We Need to Talk, a memoir about wealth is about to launch into the world. And, you know, this is a book that I've been working on for 14 years and that I'm very excited about talking about because, well, I wrote the book because my story is one that I'd want to know about if it hadn't happened to me. I also wrote the book for the millions of Americans who are like me, who have more money than they had growing up or who have more money than their extended family or more money than their friends. I think we have in our mind that wealth is this fairy tale thing and the reality can feel isolating and strange. So I'm offering my story as a way for other people to understand their own. My goal is not to show people how to do rich right. I don't have the answer for that. I'm simply offering up a story that hasn't been told that explores things like how hard it can be to navigate a vacation with another family that doesn't share your resources or how upsetting it is to feel a friend's jealousy and not be able to share what's going on in your life or how painful it can be to feel as though your parents disapprove of what you have. So I'm hoping to demystify wealth, validate this experience that no one discusses and ultimately confirm that we're all a lot more alike than different. Ultimately, I want, I hope, I wrote this book and I'm hoping to get us talking because um, money is a taboo subject, but it shouldn't be. The more I talk about money, the more I realize it's not money itself that we don't talk about. It's the emotions that are hidden behind the money that we avoid. And these emotions are universal. No matter how much you have in your bank account, if you have parents, if you have a partner, if you had siblings, friends, you probably know that money is difficult to talk about. It's uncomfortable. And we all kind of worry. We're, we're all afraid. We're afraid of hurting other people's feelings. We're afraid of rejection. We're afraid of not measuring up. We're afraid of sounding unknowledgeable. And that fear keeps us from talking. And I'm you know, we all have some money shame or money guilt. We all actually have a money story that kind of begins in our childhood. Yes. You know, this is so perfect. And this is why we were really excited to invite you as part of Money Tales. We agree. We think it's a taboo topic and it shouldn't be. And we're hoping through this experience, podcasting and, you know, giving people like you an opportunity to tell their story 
just adds to the narrative and the conversation. So can we go, can we start? We like to like kind of go to your youth and then get to where you are today. And you talked about this in your book. Could you talk to the listeners a little bit about your experience at home, how money was talked about, how, you know, were there conversations that you had? What was your memory of you know, maybe even that first money conversation with your family? Mm-hmm. Well, so I grew up, I have a, a younger brother who's two years younger than me. My parents, my dad was a corporate insurance broker and my mom studied to become a librarian and worked at the Seattle Public Library for a year until she had me. And then it was, you know, she stayed at home. She was the mom at home. She taught and my brother and I to, you know, we ate at, at seven o'clock around the dinner table. We were a family that, you know, sat down together. It was very important to read and to save money, not to be wasteful. And frugality was a big part of kind of how I grew up. And I, in fact, it was so deeply rooted that I still have that as a part of me for better and worse. One of my first experiences with money as a kid was the job my dad gave me. We had a big magnolia tree outside of our house and it dumped leaves and I was supposed to pick those leaves up. And I, you know, that made me very proud. So I picked all the leaves up. I had bags of leaves and my dad came home from work and he sat down in his big leather chair and he started counting out my leaves. And I got a penny for every two leaves I picked up. And, and as he counted that money into my hand, I felt like that was a measure of my dad's love and respect. And I was going to put that in my piggy bank and save it. Was there an emphasis, Jen, on making money? As you were growing up? No, not really. No. Actually, the emphasis was, you know, really to follow your heart and your dream and do what, you know, you want to do. I went to a liberal arts college and that was always sort of like my great opportunity to learn and open up my world and figure out, you know, who I was and what I wanted to do. So there was never really a focus on, you know, you have to earn a living. (laughs) I was just wondering, because you were mentioning that that part of your life in Seattle in the early years when you were doing some work for free, and I was just curious what that felt like. That's a hard decision to follow your passion and your heart so much. Yeah. I mean, that was definitely how I grew up. It was like, you know, I wanted to work in advertising and I was being, I have a lot of tenacity making that happen. It didn't matter if it meant sacrificing some money up front. If I could get into advertising, that's what I wanted to do. So then you make the move to Microsoft. And in the book, you talk about a situation with a coworker and you're comparing your stock option grants. I was just wondering, like, was that your first money conversation in a big adult way or? You know, it might well have been. And I, yeah. And at that point, I realized how taboo that was. And it really literally was, you know, at Microsoft, we were not really supposed to talk about our compensation or you know, let people know how many options we had. It was all like unspoken. And it wasn't at Microsoft, kind of like in my family, it was all about putting a computer on every desktop and creating incredible software and kind of being out front and beating the competition. And it was all about, you know, changing the world and being smart and strategic. So, you know, the, your personal finances were not to be discussed. Those were kind of lesser things. And I, that's how, sort of how I grew up as well. So going into my coworker's office and asking about how much that he had, yeah, that was sort of a no-no in, in many ways, both deeply within myself and at Microsoft. Do you remember how it felt to, to do that? 
Well, the, what I learned felt worse than actually doing it because <laughs> what I learned was not only did I have all these stock options and that they were worth a lot of money, he had more. We started on the same day, we were doing the exact same job, and yet he had much more than I did. And this sense of unfairness came up. And and the reason that was, was because he accepted his job offer earlier, there had been a stock split, so he had just he was luckier. <laughs> and when I, you know, approached my boss and with this hypothetical situation and she said, look, you know, don't look around, just appreciate what you have. I think that was a good message. Um, especially at the time, I didn't even realize what I had. I was in my 20s and had been incredibly fortunate to be at the right place at the right time. You know, when I read that story, I felt, gosh, what that was so brave. It's uncomfortable to have that conversation. I felt it was very brave of you to, to go in there and talk to someone who was trusted. And that's what we're trying to do, have those kind of conversations. Did you feel brave? At first, I felt like I need to get to the bottom of this. <laughs> unfair. <laughs> and then I felt like, oh, I, I shouldn't. That wasn't my place to talk about this. And no, in the end, I didn't. Although, you know, fast forward to now, I do think it's important for us all to talk about money and to understand how much we're earning compared to the next person so that there is more transparency in the workforce. I mean, that was a long time ago. So I think transparency in the workforce is really important. We should be having those conversations. Do you have some insights just on this one particular scenario? Because I think I agree with you that more conversation is needed around money. And when you can have conversations about what's happening in the workplace, that can make it easier. But I also know it's incredibly difficult because for a lot of people, the amount of money that we make is a reflection of our value. And there's so much more to it than just the compensation for the job we're doing. And so I'm, I'm curious if you have any strategies. If you, I would like to flip that on its head and say the amount of money we make is one very small piece of being in the workforce. And earning a paycheck is, yes, important, and especially kind of given our culture. But working is so much more than the money that we make. It is being part of a bigger, bigger structure. It's having a bigger goal than you are. It's being on a team, sharing you know, objectives, having the camaraderie that goes along with that. I think we don't appreciate until we don't have it, the beauty of being in the workforce. I think those are really good points. There's mm -hmm. a lot more than financial capital, I think, is, is what I'm hearing you yes, say. Yes. And maybe people yes. get too caught up in the numbers. Yes. So let's move forward to later in your time at Microsoft. So you've met David. He's doing well at the company. He has this opportunity to go work for Amazon. Tell us what the conversations between you and him were like at that time. How, how were you guys talking about money and how did you assess this possible move for your family? Right. Well, we were talking about pivotal moments before, and I guess this is really another one. And yeah, Microsoft was where we met. It's where all our friends were. It's where we spent most of our time. It was just a whole lifestyle working at Microsoft. And so to leave that, especially when David was super successful at Microsoft, I mean, he got promotion after promotion and was like someone that was definitely being cultivated to do much more and more at the company. And meanwhile, we were expecting our first child. And I was pregnant, which of course brings up all sorts of questions and unknowns. And so at this moment, all of a sudden, he's enamored with this bookstore that this guy, Jeff Bezos, is starting on the internet. And, you know, at the time, I was like, 
who's going to buy a book off the internet? I mean, who's going to the internet in the first place? How is this even viable? <laughs> it was a conversation. And again, you know, you asked about, do we follow the money? Or David did leave a lot of money on the table when he just, when we kind of made that decision together. But really, you know, he loved books. He loved technology. He, you know, loved his job at Microsoft, but he also felt like, oh, I, I could have such a big impact on this new startup. I want to try something new. I want to challenge myself. And his heart was really there. And because his heart was there, I mean, I really encouraged him to follow that and make that move. And all of a sudden, the stock options that I saw having at Microsoft were not what they thought they'd be. And, you know, then luckily I turned around and, and there was Amazon stock. <laughs> <laughs> what a great that worked thing. out. It really, I mean, it, it did work out, right? But it I really love did. That it, I love that it mirrored your family's values and what were your values, which were to follow your dreams. Mm-hmm. And that seems very, you know, consistent with what your story is about. I'm sure yeah. it was scary. Was it was it- scary. It was scary, but it was, yeah. It's a lot of well, transitions. So, <laughs> a lot of transitions. And so I, it actually makes me think, you know, when, so David quit on like a Friday and then he spent a week, he t- asked for a week off or something. And he kind of was, he cleaned out our basement, sort of his form of nesting, because you're expecting this baby. And after that, he went to work full time at, at Amazon. And then I was home with this amazing creature, this daughter. And talk about an incredible experience. I mean, being a mom was like, I couldn't even, I can't even tell you how joyous and incredible. It was like this curtain had lifted, this whole new world opened up. And I was a mom. And in fact, I talk about this in my book, I joined this mother's group and it was so wonderful to to be sharing the experience of motherhood with a bunch of women who were also going through the same thing of like, you know, how do we get our babies to sleep through the night? How do we breastfeed? And what do we do with the spit up? And what, I mean, all the issues that we, and we all wanted to tell our birth story. And so we were all shared this common love and fascination. And at the same time, this other curtain had lifted in my life and I suddenly had all this money and that space was a silent lonely space I felt like I couldn't talk about it I didn't want anyone to know about it I certainly didn't want people in my mother's group to know I mean I think people always think oh the wealthy worry about other people liking them just for their money but I wasn't worried about being liked for what I had I was worried about being hated for it hmm can you tell us a little bit more about that? Why? Why were you afraid of being hated? I think I can look around at the world and see that there's a lot of resentment and anger and there's a lot of envy. So I know that that exists. I sort of intuitively feel that. I think it's a little bit the way I grew up too. I mean, thinking I had suddenly become something that I was sort of had grown up prejudiced against. I mean, they, those people... I had an idea that, you know, the wealthy were this way, they were obnoxious or superior or, and research shows us that, that people generally believe the wealthy have gotten their money from illegal means or that they're greedy and selfish. And there's a lot of evidence out there in the world that there is a very negative feeling towards people who have gotten as lucky as I have, even though, let me say, Eight out of 10 people with wealth grew up middle class or poor. So they are you. And they aren't talking about this 
strange phenomenon that suddenly you're in a space that doesn't look or feel like what Hollywood's selling. You know, I wasn't in a sparkly private club, hanging out, sharing financial secrets. I was suddenly by myself and there was, even though all these new challenges were there, no one was sharing their upset at a sibling's resentment or their worry about raising spoiled, entitled children. You know, there were no dialogues about should we give to family members? How do you best approach philanthropy? I think there's a lot of misconception that once you have money, your problems are solved. Um, But in our experience, that's not the case. Life just gets a lot more complicated. Well, I don't know. Life does. I mean, I guess to your first point of like, you know, you think life would be perfect. I remember in high school talking to my friend, like, what would you do if you had a million dollars? And thinking about that money, like it was like a fantasy land. Well, I'd have a cute boyfriend and a fancy car. But really, I thought, oh, it would change everything, that my life would be perfect. And I think we often set ourselves up this way, thinking if only, then my life would be perfect. And we do it a lot around money. If only I could get that big promotion. We do it around other things too. Like if only I could lose 20 pounds or meet the right person. I remember a friend told me, She used to lie in bed at night, unable to sleep, thinking, if only I could make $100,000. And then she started laughing because she was making a lot more than that, but she was still lying in bed at night, unable to sleep. So Jen, if we go back to this time when you're part of the mom's group and you're just feeling like you want to hide your wealth, were you and David talking about this or, or, or were the things you shared with us more internal to just how you were thinking about your interactions with other people. It was much more internal. And I, but at the same time, I do have to say that I feel fortunate that Dave and I had a very similar kind of attitude and approach to money. I think that matters a lot. If you're kind of off or not in sync, then money is off spending and the other ones. I mean, luckily we were very much in sync. We didn't talk about it. And it's strange because like, we had several couple friends who were also experiencing this phenomenon at the same time. And we never really had super candid conversations about all the issues that were coming up for us around our families, around thinking about our kids. And this crazy thing had happened. And yet there weren't the kind of conversations that I hope to help people have. I write about in my book, and my story includes private jets and private school auctions, and you'll see luxury and the freedom that money can buy. I also want to give it, and I have given a candid look at the personal, emotional challenges that arise, and the specifics might be different, but I bet you'll be surprised. I think people will be able to relate to my experience because, again, because money is such a taboo subject and it's often those emotions behind the money that keep us from talking. And I believe that by talking, we can make deeper connections we can learn from each other. And it's often talking to people who are closest to us, you know, our parents or our kids or a friend, an aunt, an uncle, a sibling. Did the money change you? No. <laughs> It didn't change me as much as I might have expected, and it didn't change me as much as I might have hoped. I'm still me. And actually, I really do believe that. For a while, I worried, oh, I'm going to become an obnoxious person because that's who I had in my head. No, I think money reveals who you are. 
amplifies who you are. It's like a magnifying glass. So yeah, I, it hasn't changed me. It's made me more of who I am. I think age does that as well. Maybe so. <laughs> well, the wisdom we gain by experiencing <laughs> yes. life. Yes. So Jen, when and how did you learn to talk about money? It's in process. It's still going on. Well, I can tell you some stories. So, you know, one of the times that I kind of made this happen and realized how powerful it is to actually move through that discomfort, be a little vulnerable, because on the other side, there's a sense of relief and connection, is with my brother, who again is two years younger than me. He had graduated from college and he went into the Peace Corps and got a master's in Spanish and was a Spanish high school teacher, high school Spanish teacher. And at this time, he wanted to buy a house. And David and I offered him $20,000 towards the down payment, but he refused to take our gift. He said he wanted to live within his own means. And this hurt my feelings. I felt as though he were kind of looking down at our money and at me. And even though my feelings were hurt, I didn't say anything. And a few years later, when he was getting married, David and I again wrote him a check as a wedding gift. And this time he thanked us. And a couple years after that, when his first child was born, we again sent money and he and his wife thanked us. And we actually began to send a check every year. And over time, he stopped acknowledging our gifts. I'd write a check in December and hear silence. It was like the money was sort of disappearing into a void. And I began to feel a little resentful and taken for granted. But I didn't say anything. But I did make up stories in my head. I thought, oh, he thinks we have all this money, so it's nothing to us. Or he's embarrassed, he doesn't want to say anything. So then just a couple years ago, and I'm not proud to admit it, I just didn't send a check. Is that because you're just sort of fed up? In yeah, I, yeah and I wasn't super conscious, although I definitely did that. I didn't think it through. But later, he, we were communicating over email, and he sent a note. And at the end of his note, he said, wondering if a certain year-end check is just late in the mail. Is it? And this made me angry. I was shocked. And there we go. I knew we had to talk. And it wasn't easy. It wasn't, it made me uncomfortable. I had to really sit down and think about what I felt and what I wanted to say. I had to tell him, I want, you know, we're going to have this conversation, kind of find a time that was good for both of us. And I got on the phone and I told him, you know, my feelings are really hurt that you haven't been acknowledging our gifts. And he apologized right away. He said that he hadn't realized that he thought it was more comfortable for me if I didn't make a big deal of the money, which completely made sense given how we grew up. And as we talked, I mean, it was such a relief. Our conversation really brought us together. And as two people who can love and trust each other, talking put money in its place, not as something bigger than us, but as a tool and a benefit. And at that time, once we were connected, it was easy to talk about money. At that moment, he said, you know, I don't need this money, but I really appreciate it. And I had never asked him what he was doing with it. And I said, I don't really care what you do with it, but I, I want to know. I want to be part of your life. So I think, you know, when you don't talk about something, it looms large and starts to take on a life of its own. And yes, our silence gives money a lot of power. And I'm not saying it's easy. 
you have to be vulnerable. But on the other side, there's so much connection that can happen. A friend of mine, actually, a year after the fact, told me, you know, we almost didn't invite your family to join ours to see a Cirque du Soleil show. And I was like, why? What, what do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> and she was like, you know, I agonized over this for weeks. I was worried that you'd only want to sit in front row seats, which our family can't afford. And I felt terrible. I hated to think of her worrying about the finances. But also, our friendship meant more to me than front row seats. Didn't she know that? But I'm so glad she reached out and said that. The very fact that she trusted me enough to talk about money made me feel closer to her. And that conversation also made me more aware of how money can play a role in relationships and aware of how out of touch I can be, which I think are also really important reasons for us to talk to each other. Has it impacted other relationships with family and friends? These are really rich conversations that you're sharing. And has it anything else that, you know, any other family or friends? Oh, it's impacted everything, I think, in a way. Yeah. I mean, I, I, where to start? I mean, I think I've, we've learned over the course of time and experience that we do not give loans to people. That gets very messy and uncomfortable. And it's not, it's just, that's not a good idea. We have given gifts and one-time gifts. So if someone approaches you, a friend approaches you and asks you and David for a loan, what do you say? We talk to them about it and kind of figure out what's, what's behind it and no, it's not easy to say no, but I think it's oftentimes that's the right answer because it becomes codependent and are we really ultimately helping them by giving them a loan? I mean, it gets very complicated and it's also, you know, person by person, situation by situation. You named a chapter in your book, Mentors. Money Mentors is a concept that one of our other Money Tales guests talked about, Tommy Spaulding. If a young woman who just accumulated a lot of wealth I was looking to you as a money mentor or a wealth mentor. What are things that you're hoping she'll learn from you? Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, I guess I would tell her first to don't do anything rash too soon and to really look within herself to figure out what her values are, what she cares about, because I think that's really important to continue to listen to yourself. There's no right or wrong way to, to in life in general and the way you decide to handle your money really has to feel true to who you are. So give yourself time, give yourself a break and listen to your own values and live those values. Did you and David write down your values? Like, did you go through any sort of exercise? You mentioned that you're very closely aligned. We're very closely aligned. We haven't actually ever written them down, but yeah, we're very aligned. and, And I think also, you know, when you think about being parents, that's super important as well, because one of the biggest fears, I think any parent, no parent wants to raise a spoiled brat. So there's this sort of added layer if you suddenly have a lot of money. And in the end, it's not really about the money. It's about how you live your life because kids are watching. And if you're living your values, they're going to pick up those values. And it's not one conversation about, quote, these are our values. We've written them down. Here they are. It is day by day, week by week, month by month. They watch what you're doing. What do you talk about around the dinner table? How do you spend your money? Do you talk about money? When you go into the grocery store, how do you make your selections? How do you treat the other people in the store and 
How do you interact with the, the person as you're checking out? All these things are very important in kind of teaching kids about money. I think it's values. I think it's attitude and gratitude. I mean, they have grown up knowing that they are very lucky and we show our gratitude all the time and we, we get to do amazing things and we are so grateful. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Gemma, you tell us about your experience writing the book. What caused you to come up with the idea? Did you say 14 years ago? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, okay, why did I do this? Um, <laughs> well, in, in, you know, in many ways, of course, it was me kind of getting comfortable with money myself. But I thought I'd write a book. And I had a year, so I thought I'd write a book in a year. That didn't happen. And it took a lot of time to... Well, so let me, I'll tell you another story. It, it, when I was writing, you know, I went to some writers' workshops and conferences, and I was probably about five years in, and I went to the Squaw Valley Writers' Workshop. And this took place over a weekend. So I was at the Squaw Valley Writers' Workshop, and we were kind of hearing the opening remarks from the speaker, and she was saying, look around yourself. You know, you are with people who share a love of the written word and a love of the story. You're with kindred spirits all this is going to be a weekend of learning and support. And, you know, at that time, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is fabulous. I had basically been teaching myself how to write and trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to say what I want to say in a compelling way? How am I going to string together my experiences? How am I going to talk about money in a way that's not off-putting or offensive? So I was thrilled to talk. You know, I, <laughs> I didn't realize how much I didn't know until I started writing. And so I wanted to talk about writing and I was really excited to talk to people about writing, but then I realized I had to introduce myself and tell them what I was writing about. So, hi, I'm Jennifer. Yeah, I'm writing about how hard it is to have a lot of money. It doesn't go over well. Wow. wow. <laughs> and actually, I did spend some time crying in my room. And one woman I introduced myself to said, I told her what I was writing about and she looked at me, said, you don't look rich. <laughs> I'm not sure it was a compliment. <laughs> so actually, so for a long time during my writing process, my book, I, and this will tell you a, another story about my book, because initially my title of my book was Embarrassment of Riches. And it was Embarrassment of Riches for many, many years. And then it became The Tiniest Violin. And from there it went to It's Not About the Money. For a while, it was the confessions of a rich woman. It was the last taboo. It was what we don't talk about when we don't talk about money. That was too long. <laughs> and now it's we need to talk. And I feel I've really come a long way personally through that process. And I think the book is in the right space for being launched. I hope it becomes a catalyst for conversation. And after each chapter, I offer prompts for people to help them have those conversations. My hope is really to get us talking at a grassroots level so that we can learn from each other. I mean, normally when I have a problem or a question, I turn to friends. I ask them, should our 16-year-old have a curfew? It's kind of how I do my research. I talk to as many people as I can. I find out different ideas. I get their experiences. I hear different perspectives. And just talking can be helpful. It lets me know that my concern is normal, valid, and shared. But the same doesn't happen with money. How much could we learn if we talked 
to each other about our money issues. Yeah. How much more validated, how much, and frankly, it may sound far reaching, but I think that talking at a grassroots level ultimately will help us fight income inequality. Silence has a lot of power. And when we stay quiet about something, it takes on so much power. Our silence allows the status quo to exist. It keeps us from examining our own relationship with money. It keeps us stuck in a bubble unaware. When there's a huge and influential segment of the population that feels isolated and estranged, they're not likely to be at their most empathetic and generous. And they're not necessarily holding themselves accountable or inspired to make change. I'm hoping to get us talking at a grassroots level and that my book becomes that catalyst that gets us talking. I think it seems like that's why it's taken 14 years, right? I loved all the titles. It's you coming through this. You said you're still working through it, which is pretty powerful. Aren't we all? You know, we're all mm -hmm. learning. I'm just curious, do you have a money mentor? Someone you think that really is, feels comfortable, is more vocal? Maybe that's you, but do you have someone that's your mentor in this area? You know, I think there's a reason this book hasn't been written. Money's a taboo subject. But when you have wealth, you lose the right to complain. Mm. And no one wants to sound ungrateful. And no one wants to be judged. So it's easier to stay quiet. So no, I don't have a mentor. When I looked around, I couldn't talk to friends. I also looked around. There were no books. I can't stay silent. I think it's really important to shine a light on reality. John, you've gone through a huge evolution in your life in, in terms of your relationship and your identity around wealth. Can you describe for us what your current relationship with money is today? Well, I think, you know, having, I can stand more in my own power and myself and say, yeah, I've been super lucky. I have a lot of money. And that money to me is a tool that I can use to my advantage to our family's advantage, but also to make a difference in the world, especially now. I mean, with the pandemic hitting, you know, my husband and I sitting in our backyard thinking, what can we do? How can we give to nonprofits, especially nonprofits? My husband has a nonprofit. He's like, you know, nonprofits aren't able right now to raise the money that they need and they can't have their luncheons, they can't have their evenings, they're, they're, and they're hurting and they're. There's more need than ever. We need to start giving to nonprofits. And at the same time, we're very aware that there's a lot of money hung up in what's called a donor-advised fund. There's many donor-advised funds, over 700,000 across the country. And it had recently been called to our attention that there's over $120 billion sitting untapped in donor-advised funds. So there's two problems here. That money is already earmarked as charitable dollars and there's all this need going on right now and we thought we're going to link the two we're going to inspire people to give and we're going to inspire people who are holders of donor advised funds to spend out half of the money in those funds so half my DAF I love that May 5th <laughs> and I have to say it's been and you know what when we came up with that idea, it's super exciting. There was a moment where I felt like, uh, I'm nervous. I'm uncomfortable talking about this, saying that I have a million dollars to give. 
there's it's not comfortable even now. I've been thinking about this, writing about this for years, and it's still there's still that moment. But I'm so glad I pushed through any discomfort that came up because it's had an incredible impact. Our million dollars has gone five times that far. We've moved five million dollars to date through half my DAF, giving to over 500 nonprofits across the country. And we've had people join us in the matching pool. So we're now able to give $1.4 million in additional funds to nonprofits. And it's thrilling. Oh, that's really exciting. I love the creativity and problem solving there. Thank you. Keep an eye out for half my DAF 2021. (laughs) I can't wait. I love this idea. I do too. Don't let it get stuck there. Yeah. Jim, tell us what's one thing that you most want to do that you haven't done yet in your life? Launch a book. <laughs> and here we go. I mean, really, oh, so this is right so much time working on this, and I am so excited to have it out in the world. And I'm hoping it makes a difference. Even if it makes a difference in one person's life, that'll mean a lot to me. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, we'd like to ask our guests one question to conclude. What's your next money conversation going to be? I think I'm going to have this conversation over and over again. I think it's very important to talk about the fact that wealth isn't as it appears in Hollywood. It is that we are 99% the same and that we need to be talking to each other about money, no matter how much we have in our bank account. We could all benefit from being more connected because ultimately what makes us happy, it's our relationships with other people, that sense of connection. And I'm hoping to get us talking as a way to connect and learn. Tanrisha, you you are a woman on a mission and it's a great mission. We wish you so much luck with it and um, congratulations on writing the book. And thank you so much for sharing all of your wonderful money tales with us today. Thank you so much, Sandy and Cami. Really appreciated talking with you. Thank you, Jen. Andy here with another personal finance insight. In our conversation with Jennifer Risher, she mentions that she and her husband accumulated wealth from employee stock options. If you're not familiar with them, stock options are a compensation tool that became extremely popular in the 1990s and is still used today. Stock options are designed to align the employee's incentive rewards with the rising stock price. Not everyone knows how stock options work, so let's explore them now. When stock options are granted to an employee, the grant letter will specify the terms of the grant. These include the strike price, the vesting period, and the expiration date. The strike price is the cost that the employee must pay to exercise the stock options, and it's usually set at the price of the stock on the date of grant. The vesting period is the time period during which the employee must continue to work at the company in order to be eligible to exercise the stock option grant. Typical vesting periods are monthly, quarterly, or annually, and they usually occur over a one to four year period following the grant date. The expiration date is the date after which the grant may no longer be exercised and is up to 10 years after the grant date. Let's look at an example to see how stock options can become attractive over time. We'll assume that you were granted 10,000 stock options in startup company A when A's stock was valued at $10 per share. This means that it would cost you $100,000 to exercise the full option grant. 
and I'm calculating $100,000 as the 10,000 stock option grant multiplied by the $10 per share strike price. Let's further assume that the grant vested annually over the last four years. This means that 2,500 shares became eligible for you to exercise each year, and since you didn't exercise any of the stock options, all 10,000 are fully vested and you could exercise them today. Let's also assume that you and the rest of the employees at Company A have been working really hard to grow the company over the last four years. The company went public and the company's shares are now trading on the stock exchange at $100 per share. This means that your stock option grant is worth $1 million. That's the 100 per share trading price multiplied by the 10,000 vested shares in your stock option grant. And remember, it would cost you $100,000 to exercise the grant. So the $900,000 difference, and this is known as the stock option spread, would be the amount of money you would pocket before considering income taxes if you exercised the stock option and sold the resulting shares today. If the stock price were $300 per share, the spread would be $2.9 million, right? So you start with $3 million of value, subtract out the $100,000 of exercise cost, and your spread is the $2.9 million remaining. Let's pause here because I think this is really interesting. In my example, if the stock price experienced a 200% increase from $100 to $300 per share, the stock option spread grows even more. It grew by 222%. This is because of the leverage embedded in the stock option by its fixed strike price. You see, no matter what the future value of the stock is, the stock option strike price remains fixed. As cool as stock option leverage is, it's important to remind you that not all stocks go up in value. If Company A's stock price stayed at the $10 per share strike price, or if it dipped below that amount, the entire stock option grant would be worthless. Stock options can be an amazingly rewarding compensation tool, especially if you receive big grants and are at a company with a growing stock price. It can also be extremely complicated as you navigate decisions related to determining when to exercise stock options and when to sell the resulting shares of stock. There are many, many, many considerations involved in these decisions, including your reliance on the stock options to make your financial plan work, how many stock option grants you have and expect to receive in the future, whether or not the company pays a dividend, income tax implications, how long you expect to continue to work at the company, and importantly, how confident you are in the company's future stock price. At Asperian, we spend a lot of time carefully crafting stock option strategies with our clients. Our goal is to help them best optimize the stock options to achieve what matters most to them. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperian.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.